Welcome to the Brothers Zoll Podcast, a show 37 years in the making, hosted by David, John, and Simeon Zoll. Join us as we recreate some of our favorite dinner table discussions from growing up. Talking theology, culture, jokes, and everything in between. Today is the day that we ab-react. We get to use a fancy word. All the other topics of this first season are kind of uh, not self-explanatory, but common words. Ab-reaction is a word that's common, uh, at least around the dinner table uh, at our house, um, but it, it's maybe not, it's not self-evident. Um, that is the topic, though, and I think it can lead us into a lot of different interesting areas for basically what life is about, what ministry is about, what healing and therapy are about. Um, and so we thought well, this is kind of almost like a curveball for this first season, but I think it's an important one. Well, what does this have to do with abreaction? I'm going to read you a couple of uh, definitions. The first one comes from Mr. Abreaction himself, our father, wrote this, and it was posted on the Mockingbird website in our glossary. Uh, he writes, Abreaction is the bringing to the surface of unpleasant, suppressed thoughts and feelings in such a way that their being felt emotionally out in the open lessens their power or hold over a person and sometimes can seem to extinguish them completely. Abreaction is like a reverse lightning rod, for it can ground tempestuous psychic energies that exist inside a person in order that such energies will lose their power on the outside. Now, one of our father's great, one of his great teachers is a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst named Frank Lake, and he defined abreaction in his clinical theology this way. He calls it a technique employed in psychoanalytic therapy by which repressed emotions, which belong to earlier and usually painful situations, are relived vividly and with feeling, thus lessening the emotional tension caused by inner conflict and its repression. And then uh, over the years on the Mockingbird website, people have sort of taken this theme and, and run with it because it's a major, major theme, even though we don't always use the word. Uh, our friend Josh Redderer uh, has put it in more gut-level terms when he says, my version of abreaction would go something like this. You know, when you hear a song, watch a movie, see a clip of something that makes you lose it, I mean, instant waterworks, yeah, that's abreaction. We've all experienced it. Sometimes the effects are mild. You get a little choked up, misty-eyed, and there's a lot of throat clearing. At other times, the effects are much less subtle. It's like the spigot of the water tower was turned on and a deluge of tears comes out all at once. Those are two different, no, three different definitions. Um, so, uh, Sim, I want to throw it to you first and just say, why, why talk about abreaction? Uh, what would you fill in for, uh, from those definitions? And um, how, what are you abreacting to currently? <laughs> <laughs> so, for me, um, abreaction, you know, refers in, you know, to, with all those things. It's like, um, it's like the sort of form of ongoing emotional therapy in your life that you don't have a lot of control over, but that just kind of comes upon you, uh, at least as you expose yourself to, um, very often to stories, movies, or music. So, um, and uh, so to me, it's partly, I mean, any work of art that I really love is basically something that I associate with some form of ab reaction. Um, I think... Uh, so I can think of all sorts of specific examples of sort of when a, say, a, a scene in a movie has spoken to me in exactly the kind of way that Josh was just um, describing. And often it, it, the power is that you're not even quite sure why, or, or you know, it's not immediately, it's, it, it, what's going on emotionally is a lot clearer than, than sort of your, your discursive analytic account of it, I guess. Uh, so, you know, your emotions are leading your, your brain, even though there is maybe, uh, there are things to understand um, and analyze sort of afterwards. But I think there's also more subtle forms where you just, there's a form of like, just the reason you love any form of, say, pop culture, at least in, in, in my case, uh, it isn't always because it's specifically unearthing a, uh, you know, helping me process a specific issue or problem, but, but it's somehow expressing some core thing that feels like me or that I identify with 
um, it's, it's expressing something that seems important and real to me that I haven't fully been able to express before. Um, and it does that every time. And so it doesn't always have to involve tears, I guess, for that reason, though the, the, the most powerful and, and um, kinds do. But what Dad said about it being like a lightning rod, um, I certainly relate to that very strongly. A strong. reverse Sometimes lightning we, rod, yeah. Uh, yeah, where you uh, almost instantly, you realize what's really going on with you, and it, it loses its power, and you feel freed. Um, there's, there's a combination of truth and freedom that happens through somehow externalizing what's going on in you. Um, but it's somehow it's, it's very much caught up with not actually th- things that, that cannot otherwise be expressed or that are inchoate or that are repressed like that. So things that you're not fully aware of and yet seem more important than almost anything else. Hmm. To me, it's when some imagery or allegory or metaphor or illustration speaks directly to me about my life. Right. That's 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 what it really is when I kind of receive some kind of fresh recalibration in my soul because of some imagery in a moment when I don't see it coming. Yeah. Or at least I will now these days I'll actually look for things that will hopefully speak to me. Um, the classic example I always think of, it comes from Hamlet. Right. When um, Hamlet puts on the play. Remember about um, the the king being poisoned and then the queen getting with the mother. And when he shows it to his uncle who has just taken the throne from his father, um, remember uh, the king immediately storms out of the performance and goes into the chapel and hits his knees, right? And Hamlet knew that an illustration that related to the dynamics that were going on in the king's inner life would draw some of the reality to the surface. And that's, that's, so for me, like you all have said, it's whenever something, some imagery speaks to me about my life. And like you said, some, it can be a painting. Most of the time for me these days, it's movies and television. Um, for me though, the reason I'm so interested in this as a minister, uh, is because for any of the material we are talking about in scripture to actually have legs in people's lives, the Holy Spirit has to facilitate some kind of abreactive connection between the material on the page and the material in their life in a way that speaks to their hearts, right? And so I am convinced that imagery and illustration is an essential piece of ministry that I think a lot of people are missing. Mm-hmm. If you just talk about the words, so in my mind, illustrations and stories are the means by which we bridge the gap between the head and the heart. And that's and different to the extent from... that ministry is lacking mm-hmm. this understanding of the role of illustrations and allegories in ministry. Um, it's usually lacking connectivity to the parishioners and the people it concerns. Sim, though some people, they talk about narrative theology and narrative preaching, and it, it, that's... That's not what we're, we're what John is talking about. I don't think, and we're talking about the use of story and not placing yourself in some sort of grand narrative, right? How how would you just make that distinction? Well, I mean, they're they're not completely a million miles apart because sort of at least good narrative theology is based on the insight that um, that people somehow react more strongly to stories than to concepts or propositions, mm-hmm. um, and that so therefore the shaping effect of scripture is very often through somehow kind of the, the, it's the way in which it shapes you to, to, to sort of see yourself in these stories, to be shaped by them in different ways. So insofar as that's the case, um, it's not a million miles away. Uh, and I think there are times when scripture can cause you to abreact, you know, you read it. Though I find it's often, it's not the obvious place, you know, it's some random verse in the Psalms or in um, Isaiah or, or something that suddenly just jumps out and you're, and you just feel like, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, your, your life has been, been read to you and through uh, unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, uh, but no, we're, so it, it's the same territory of the idea that we connect through stories, through imagination in some way. And this, that I think, I, I think of a narrative theology as kind of theology groping towards insights about the importance of emotion in religious, yeah. uh, life. And a lot of the power of it has to do with, 
what's what the way in which the stories are, have so much more power over our over our feelings, which is where we really live. Because well, one of the things you guys are both getting at is that there's a tendency in, uh, re- I guess, liturgical, religious, or historical religious circles that are that are highly theological or confessional to be a head trip to be nothing but abstractions and and assertions about the world and about who God is and who you are, which may be true, but don't travel that distance. One of the wonderful... Um, Ethan Richardson sent this to me a while ago, but it's from Adam Phillips, the wonderful, I think he's English, uh, psychoanalyst, who wrote this. He says, we all have self-cures for strong feeling. Then the self-cure becomes a problem in the obvious sense that the problem of the alcoholic is not alcohol, but sobriety. Drinking becomes a problem, but actually the problem is what's being cured by the alcohol. By the time we're adults, we've all become alcoholics. That's to say, we've all evolved ways of deadening certain feelings and thoughts. One of the reasons we admire or like art, if we do, is that it reopens us in some sense. As Kafka wrote in a letter, art breaks the seas that's frozen inside us. Oh, that is such a good line. That is ab reaction in in a nutshell. That's what we're after. I mean, that's why you guys joke when when we're doing a podcast. You see nothing but action figures behind me because there there's most of them have some ab reactive connection to uh, a movie or a uh, a drama that I relate to or that that touched me emotionally at a certain time in my life, uh, and that I want to be surrounded by. I don't think though that it just has to do with punting back to the past. Right. Often it'll it'll ex, you know sort of excavate some of our inner archaeology. Sure. But I also think often what I'm looking to it for usually is to speak to me in the present. I think a good example comes from Jeremiah, right? The famous uh, Jeremiah is walking down the street one day and he looks into a house where there's a potter at work on a wheel. Yeah. And the moment he sees the potter working on the wheel, he has that great insight about we are the clay, and God is the potter. Now, that is abreaction in a nutshell. And then it is such powerful abreactive content that St. Paul, I think, says, oh, still resonates with me in Romans, right? In sort of chapter 13, maybe. Mm. Um, you know, and I find that the Old Testament prophets were really adept in abreactive content as vehicle for their ministry in a way that I think there's a creative component to all of it that is often lacking in our church. I think it's one of the reasons why people love C.S. Lewis. I don't think they so much love C.S. Lewis for the content of his theology, which is, I would say, very straightforward and and somewhat basic. Um, But what they love is his creativity and the way that he creates analogy to breathe life into classic Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. Remember Ezekiel with the the scroll that has bitter words written on it, and then he's told to eat the scroll, and he discovers that it tastes like honey? Well, that is a line that personally for me spoke to me greatly and continues to speak to me greatly. It's like, where are the bitter words in your life that you don't want to swallow? Yeah. And the comfort in that idea is that if you swallow the thing that you are anticipating will be bitter, you will find a sweetness on the other side of it that you never saw coming, right? Now that is a word that speaks to me in my own life today. There's one of the things that's always bothered me about when people characterize our work or the work of Mockingbird is this when they say it's like a pop culture website. And um, I get it. There's there's lots of pop culture dressing, you know, window dressing. But what it's what what they were really saying, or what they don't even realize they're saying, is that it's a abreactive theological site in that we're constantly scanning pop culture, the pop culture that we are consuming because we're 21st century Americans, and we're uh, unpacking what it is that's 
abreacting within us. That's why that's why pop culture is important. It's not important because you know the production values are getting better on HBO, even though that's kind of cool. But it's um that's what's going on. It's it's the avenues that make you cry and make you laugh. And um, I mean, laughter is another huge component here, don't you think? Sim, I mean, Sim, you just wrote a book about, the, I guess, an underappreciation or deep misunderstandings of the affective, and by that I mean the emotional component of religion, which has been often uh, shied away from out of fear because it's so strong and so potent, or perhaps uh, just suspected for all sorts of historical reasons. Uh, but that's what kind of what the way that we get at this sort of at this kind of uh, emotional reality, right? I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's a very strong association scripturally and in theological tradition between the Holy Spirit and uh, emotion and desire. You know, the fruit of the spirit are are mostly emotions or affections or else dispositions that are sort of have affective components. Um, Christian life is characterized as a as a as a life of of competing desires between the spirit. <clears throat> And the flesh, uh, in Galatians five, uh, and and so on, and so um, I think somehow the the there's there's a close connection between our emotional life and the work of the Holy Spirit. But part of the point, or why it's interesting, it's not just because emotions themselves are cool or or, or something. It's just because that's where we really live, or they are indicators of the things that actually matter to us. And it's so what we're assuming, where I think the whole idea of apprehension, the power of it, assumes is that human beings. Are, we're very good at putting up walls against the things that actually matter to us, that are actually going on. We're afraid of letting certain experiences out. We're afraid of um, opening ourselves to certain kinds of vulnerability or rejection, or who even knows why? Often it's, it's so natural, it's so built in, we don't even know why we're putting up these walls all the time, other than that the world is is painful and we want to avoid <laughs> pain. And so um, so often with the, when we're operating at the level of, of, of language, of concepts, of what we sort of consciously think is happening in a given moment, we're not very you know, we're often pretty out of touch with with what you might say is the real thing going on. And so to me, emotion, the heart, is the very often in that context, it is the indicator of what's really happening, what really matters to you. So the thing that you think you can you can give a whole lecture on, but that leaves you cold, you don't actually care about. The thing that you can't talk about without choking up, whatever it means, whatever's going on, that <laughs> is where you somehow live. And therefore, a living religion, a living Christianity is going to address that um, and help you in that. And so it's, it makes a lot of sense that the Holy Spirit is associated uh, with that dimension of our life. Cause you got a heart so big It could crush this town And I can't hold out forever Even walls fall the other thing that the Holy Spirit is closely associated with that's also relevant is unpredictability. You've already mentioned this a couple of times, but part of, um, you know, it, it related to this sort of dynamic of not really fully being in touch with what's going on with you is the dynamic of um, not being able to anticipate what you actually need or that will actually uh, help you, that unanticipatable, you know, the, the Spirit blows or the Spirit wills. You know, Augustine says that uh, I, at one point when he's grieving a friend, he said, I have become to myself a vast problem. Uh, and elsewhere he says that his, um, that man is a vast deep whose hairs, O Lord, you have numbered, and in you none can be lost. Uh, yet it is easier to count his hairs than the affections and motions of his heart. So this sense of enormous complexity inside of us. Um, that Augustine knew better than sort of anyone. Um, uh, and that's the world where we're actually living and we also often don't understand. And so what we're talking about is is anything that breaks through to that area. And that's why, it, it, you know, often it's pop culture because that's the 21st century, like you say, Dave, and maybe it's easy. Um, but uh, it could just as easily be super high culture or maybe something that's not directly cultural, you know, potentially. Mm. Um, but the point is the connection with what's really real um, rather necessarily than, than the, would, the means itself. Would you go so far as to say that what we're talking about is where God is almost? That, that uh, we're, we're not just talking about uh, some psychoanalytic project. We're talking about a, a theological one. 
right? It's a or it's a spiritual one is is a better way to put it. So to me, there's a very close association between every action and the voice of God uh, in my life. And like John was saying, speaking directly to me when I feel. Because to experience abreaction is to to feel understood and to feel known almost instantly, somehow to be connected with mm-hmm. in something that you were not, not almost by definition not feeling connected with. Um, and is it you know the truth? God is always in the truth, and you know often abreaction is getting you in touch with the truth of what's happening, and that is by definition. Um, God. And so for me, that's a very natural connection. I wouldn't know how to think of a, of a significant emotional connection with a, with a story, with an image, with a, an event in my life, other than as somehow God speaking to me. I think people can get hung up on whether, oh, well, how do you know? What is he really saying? Are you sure? That's, that's not quite the point. Maybe we can talk more about that later. But, um, but absolutely to me, the, the connection with God's voice is, mm. uh, I don't know how to dissolve it. Yeah. What do you think, Dave? Uh, I agree. I think that this is part of the gift we were given as kids, as a father who's voraciously looking for God. And the way that he is looking for God has been through novels and movies and highbrow and lowbrow culture, because it's, it again, it reveals to a person. It, sometimes I wonder if there's a gender component to this, because it feels like, at least I, I'm married to a woman whose emotions are much more accessible to her. <laughs> And I, I often need a little bit more of a artistic entree into them. I, I don't know, I don't know why them were set up that way, at least in my own uh, relationship. But um, I don't. It, it just mirrors to me sometimes the way that we we hold these things differently. And you can get in hot water talking about the differences here. But uh, I know that, yeah, my my emotional pulse or my exactly what's going on inside me I can feel upset about something but I don't really know quite what it is and then um, over time I'll realize gosh I've been listening to only this sort of music my one of my great examples of it in my own life was uh, and this relates to how we how we relate to human beings in general is always my as a 13 year old being super interested in very angry music and there's a school of thought out there that would say um the music is making you angry stop listening to metallica stop turn off the m&m or you know for in my case it was nirvana and uh, you'll feel better and what was actually happening is we had moved uh, a few times in a few years because of uh, our, our father's education and uh, midlife crisis. And so we were, uh, I was angry about that. And I sort of thought that the music that was, I couldn't quite come out and say it. So the music that I was gravitated towards was what helped me feel those things and uh, heal them in a way. And then as time went on and I made friends and things got easier, then all of a sudden I'm really interested in the Beach Boys, which is a completely different type of music. It and 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 mom and dad, to their great credit, did not come in with a mandate or a prohibition against angry music. They sort of had a sense, I think, that there was a therapeutic element that was being mirrored. And so I I wrote about this in A Mess of Help. I think it was most important to me. It's like the very, did I listen to Nirvana because I was angry or was I angry because I listened to Nirvana? And it's always, I was, uh, I listened to Nirvana because I was angry. And by the way, you can listen to Nirvana even when you're not angry. There's a lot of great music. The remixes recently have been really relevatory. So, yeah, and I find myself always on the hunt for the next thing and figuring out what, uh, because if you're trying, say if you're someone like us who's trying to convey to people some message of comfort and grace and truth and God's uh, presence in their lives, and you don't, you're not connected to it in any way yourself, that's a real liability. And that's when people start to split into three or four and uh, they become alienated from themselves. And so... You have to be on the hunt for these things, not only for material in your preaching, but to reveal to yourself where you're actually living and how... And and Scripture can, again, have that effect. There are times when all you... John, you did it brilliantly in a sermon last year that I completely ripped off, where you just told the story of Joseph. 
And it was just that there was so much, there's so much material, emotional material in that story that it, it carried all the weight of people being like, oh, I can, you can, you can see myself in this, or this, this is going to hit me uh, in a time of being abandoned and being in a foreign land and being in exile and being in isolation or what have you. And uh, so sometimes the, the Bible can do that work for you, but a lot of times it, it right. kind of comes I just think, from yeah, other... You, you uh, need imagery. Yeah. And if you're in deep theological territory, you really need imagery. Yeah. And often the Bible gives us that imagery, uh, but, but I spend a lot of time trying to breathe life into the faith and looking for expressions of the truth of the gospel in my own life. And I will say one of the things that I'm often looking for when I'm hoping to be hit by that abreactive salve is new insight into what I'm dealing with. So usually it'll be both something where I identify myself in a situation and see it a new way. That's the part that I sort of associate with the divinity. Um, sort of like some portrait of a problem and then some portrait of the hope that lies on the other side of the problem that I don't see. Usually a lot of those images really are the ones that hit home for me. So the one that has been speaking to me recently, and I think understandably in the snow, is a painting by Caspar David Friedrich called Winter Landscape. And that shows an image of a man in a field covered in snow, lying against a rock, and there's a crutch on the, on, laid in the snow. He's collapsed in the snow. He's a handicapped person who's clearly hobbled through the snow. It's the, that's right. It's the painting on the cover of Dad's most recent book. <laughs> and he's looking up at a pine tree, you know, like a Christmas tree. And in the middle of the Christmas tree, he sees the cross. And just beyond the horizon line that he can't see is the sort of sky lit up with a cathedral, maybe representing heaven, maybe representing hope, the promise of faith. And he has collapsed, and he's looking to Christ crucified in the winter. And to me, it's just such an image. And it is everything we need to pin our hopes on in the end of 2020, as far as I'm concerned. It's Christmas, it's the faith, it's 2020, and it is hope uh, on the other side of 2020, and a message of something bigger than the confines of our current experience. Mm. So, you see what I mean? That's abreaction in a nutshell for me this week. That's very, I mean, hugely profound. And abreaction is the sort of thing that can't really be put into words because it has such an emotional connotation to it. Mom and Dad went to a show. They dropped me off at Grandpa Joe's. I kicked and screamed, so please don't go. Grandma, take me home. Grandma, take me Part and parcel of this, I think, is is a wider view of how people heal and what they need from. I mean, we we've talked about church and we've talked about um, we talked about suffering too, uh, and we've talked about holiness. How does a person ever get better? Uh, but it it sounds to me like one of the things we're circling around here is that this is one of the ways, uh, one of the things people need. It felt like it. I remember when I first entered into youth ministry and was really being exposed to, I guess, uh, evangelicalism in a in a in a in a robust and not terribly in a very healthy kind of way. But th- there was vestiges of a of a suspicion of psychology, and uh, people just not being sure what to to make of psychological language and how does it translate and how does it not, and yet. I grew up in a in a household that we did as of a, of a Christian father talking constantly telling people to go into therapy, and I think that this emphasis on the psychological realities and that that toolkit, as if you can combine it with sort of or integrate it with prayer and the Holy Spirit and uh, a appreciate appreciation of art, uh, that has a, it has a real healing potency, I guess. Um, is that too too far to to 
speak. I mean, John, you're you're not at all. You're in the care of souls. This is what you're you're doing. And Sim, I, I feel like this is what your book is about. What, where do you go with that? So, uh, someone. I mean, I've been writing about feelings and stuff for a long time, and someone uh, showed me something, and then. Um, I think it's in the Four Laws or some sort of thing that Campus Crusade used to use as an evangelistic tool, maybe still does. I don't really know. There was a sort of a pamphlet, and somewhere in the pamphlet, there's this image of a train with uh, that has like I, I don't even know what the things in the front are. They're the I don't know the Bible or reason or something. But and the and the caboose of the train is called feelings, and it was this image that shaped many many people. That just this this immediate sense that your feelings are are. Are not as important that they're not. Um, I think the worry. I mean, having now studied this kind of professionally, there's a long-standing, deep Protestant worry, in particular, about a kind of subjectivism, or, or that, that, that feelings are ephemeral, that they're chaotic, that they're a place where sort of the devil can get in because they're so you, you lose the sort of solid rock of of other things, um, and somehow that's. That's become part of, uh, especially many strains of evangelicalism have this anxiety about experience. Almost a slight misogyny too. Even as the best forms of evangelicalism are are really good with with emotional experience, basically. Yeah. Um, so I think that's uh, there definitely is something there, and we didn't grow up um, with that. So it's not, um, but, it, but it seems obvious to me for some reason that that the the our emotional life is just is kind of where we live to such a significant degree that we can't just put it to the side. This is my life here we're talking about. We're not just talking about, you know, something else. We're talking about my life. But also there's now, it turns out that emotions are a lot more complicated than just little ephemeralities of, of feeling that you just need to kind of steal yourself until your body sort of gets gets over it or something. That actually they, they really are strong indicators and they're shaped by our histories and our parents and our relationships and uh, all kinds of things. And, and again, there's a great line from uh, Jean-Yves Lacoste, a sort of philosophical theologian, says that uh, emotions or affections are the half-light of understanding, that they're, a, they're an indicator of, of what's happening. Mm. Um, they're they're, they're, a, they're an Im- a sense of the sight where you need to be, be uh, looking for understanding and also maybe looking for God. John, I mean, as you are a pastor and you're trying to care for people's souls, as it were, how does this fit in with that? Does it at all? Oh, I mean, for me, it's it's it is the methodology that f- enables a huge percentage of my ministry, and I would think those who are not thinking in these terms are usually sort of chasing around the main thing. You know, they're sort of circumventing the main avenue of through way. Um, But for example, I wear a collar most days of the week. And the moment that a person sees a person in a collar, they have a million thoughts or feelings, should I say. Um, Not a million, but a few. Mm. Either it's ambivalence or um, mixed feelings, gravitation toward, and simultaneous repulsion. But this is why I won't wear my collar on an airplane usually, because if I wear my collar and sit down on an airplane, the person next to me will spill their soul. (laughs) And it's not because they know anything about me, but it's because of the imagery that my collar represents. And I don't wear it lightly, and I sometimes want to say, y'all, you're just... This is not a truth that you are pursuing. Like you, the collar is just a piece of plastic. Anybody can put this on. And yet, when a person walks into my office and I am wearing my collar, I understand that whether it's a good or a bad thing is irrelevant. I represent God. And so when they begin to talk to me, they are really talking to God. And Almost all of my pastoral prayers after we discuss something and something is brought to light and surfaced begin, I'll usually pray, God, I know that you are here with us. Mm -hmm. 
And I also want to say, and I know this because the person has been talking to me as though I represent Mm. you. And that is a way that I am constantly processed. And by nature of the office I hold as the rector of a church, I represent a whole bunch of things to people. Now, sometimes I'm cutting through those things and trying to sort of dismantle the preconceived ideas people have. In fact, a lot of the time I am. But other times, uh, but either way, I'm never acting as though those things are not playing a role. And I think sometimes we want to disregard those factors. And those factors are more powerful than people's ability to think their way around Mm -hmm. them. Um, I also just know every clergy person that I know says the first conversation you have with almost anyone, if you bump into them in public, say at a grocery store, it always starts the same way. I'm sorry I haven't been in church more recently, more regularly, etc. Mm-hmm. And then the conversation continues. Don't worry about it. I say, I don't take attendance. I'm there every Sunday on behalf of all of us. You know, you try to immediately reconstitute their vision of God from being one who is keeping attendance to one who is gracious. Mm. And again, all of this is abreactive material that is at play. Yes. I think there's a really important point, uh, exactly what you said, is partly that um, it's, it's not that it is as if things, this is a space where God speaks. It is that God does speak to people, you know, through the minister or through the service. So, so the, the illustration, you know, so when I, a classic abreaction thing that I'll always remember, John, you'll, you'll remember this too, but um, was many years ago, um, I was having a very difficult time in my marriage. And I watched the movie Miami Vice, the the, the newer Michael Mann one, um, which is just full of abreaction for me, that movie. My favorite, changed uh, my life too. Um, and there's a scene towards the end where the Jamie Foxx character, um, he's sort of Tubbs, is uh, his, the woman he loves is in extreme uh, medical distress. She, she's like in a coma. She, she's out of it and she may be dying and he's sitting there holding her hand. And it's, it's a classic. It makes you tear up even just to say it. But the, and he's holding her hand and then suddenly her hand moves and he doesn't know, he doesn't, and then he forgets because he's half asleep. And then her hand grabs his and she's woken up. And to me, I felt basically God was saying, hold on. Uh, mm. It seems like something is dead that is not yet dead. It's, uh, and, and that you know, really very deeply um, spoke to me. But the point is, not, it wasn't sort of just an illustration or just an image. That was God speaking to me in a way wow. that I could hear directly, actually. Um, and so God speaks through, through means, you know, uh, yes. in, in this world, we are, um, we, we live in a world of things and means and stories. And so, so that's why they really are both talking just to John Zoll and they're talking to God. And those things are simultaneously true. This is why I love the sacraments, right? This is how I can really get on board with a sacramental theology because of the imagery of them. You know, Cranmer said that the gospel preached puts the word of God in our ears and the bread and wine put it in our mouths and our stomachs, right? And our hands. So it just activates different senses. Again, it's the methodology. Jesus uses so much imagery. Let's keep that in mind as well. The the last thing though I want to say, Sim, sometimes people will say, well, if you use a reference that people haven't heard of, you will lose them, you know? And so you often have to do a little setup, um, but it's not true. And I was saying, well, Simeon, there's this thing that really spoke to me once. I was working on a sermon, and I said, but I'm worried it's a little obscure. You know, I think it was an Italo pop song from 1980s Italy. And you said, John, if it spoke to you, it will speak to them. Yep. Yep. And that is a line for me that underscores what you're saying. And I've come to really trust that. And I also prefer abreactive material that spoke to me 
to me speaking about myself, which is what I find most clergy tend to do in the place of abreaction. They simply um, speak autobiographically, usually material that they have not processed properly, both abreactively and with a therapist. And it usually is incredibly uncomfortable for the congregation. And so I will often change a story about myself to being a story about someone in the third person, um, just to distance myself from it so that it can be more of an abreactive vehicle. Yeah, so they, they're not thinking uh, of you in, in specifically. Exactly. And That's the this problem. This is the great thing. Yep. I mean, I'm, I've preached pretty constantly, and you know, you know you've missed the mark when someone comes up and says, that was an amazing job. Like, you did, a great, you did a great thing there. You delivered that so beautifully and you gave, gave me a lot to think about. You know you've actually missed the mark. What you want to hear every single time is, how did you know? Were you in our bedroom last night? I was like, I was sort of honest about where I was at, but I really just told a story about the Bee Gees because that's where my head is and heart is at right now. And somehow this person who hates disco or doesn't could care less about the Bee Gees or is just younger and has never even heard of them, they're spoken to through this thing because it's coming through you. And all of a sudden they're like, how did you know? How are you there? I was like, well, the, the means I, by which I got to your bedroom was, was not a roadmap that said, and, and sometimes preachers go wrong when they think they're, when they, like, I remember uh, Paul Walker here who studied uh, under our father, he would, when he first started preaching, he, after knowing our dad, he would try to use sort of B movies and monster movies and, and like uh, classic rocks references, but it wasn't true to him. So once he started talking about William Faulkner and uh, Meriwether Lewis and, uh, you know, the things that really touched him, then the congregation got the same. Uh, It just exploded uh, rather than trying to force something that doesn't actually... It's it's one of the things I always tell people in in ministry who are going into, like, don't do what the formula tells you. Do what you actually enjoy. So find out whatever it is that is... where God speaks to you, slash what you enjoy, and your af- your your affections, your emotions are engaged, and see what happens by if you can be there. It doesn't mean it's the opposite, actually, of um, solipsism or narcissism, and just sort of making everything about you. It's actually what allows you to to really connect with others. It's. I had this experience. I have an associate minister here who's um, been ordained for just a few years, and his name's Drew Courtright, and he's just amazing. And I've been talking to him a lot about this material, which, let's be honest, he didn't ever hear any of these ideas taught to him in seminary. And uh, so he's been sort of digesting a whole bunch of new ideas about ministry, I think, um, both through Mockingbird and through my influence. And he's very smart and also humble and open. And he's convinced that this version of ministry is compelling. And so as I have watched him try to adopt some of this approach in his preaching, I watched a transformation occur. And he one day preached a sermon where he talked about Little League Baseball. And the moment that he talked about Little League Baseball, it was, I both completely had a new understanding of him, and I felt like the material was really speaking to me, and that he had just suddenly graduated to a whole new place as a preacher, because suddenly he was tracking with the place in his own life that gets him both energized and reflective. And I know nothing about baseball or Little League Baseball, but I cannot wait to hear more of him talking about it because of this. And it was so cool. And like you said, I think people have different places in their lives. Like Paul Walker had Southern literature and dad had B horror movies and I have strange music and Simeon has um, cosmetic products for face and hair. <laughs> I was just going to say working. the uh, not about they're working cosmetic products, but um, about the, uh, the the image I always have of what we're describing, and uh, is that it's it's like it's you tap into the the electricity, and your voice suddenly has this kind of electricity. That, that it's the Thornton Wilder line about the uh, from the angel that troubled the waters, a wonderful three minute 
play where he says that uh, it, it is about a person's suffering, but it's it's that which makes their low voice tremble into the hearts of men. We're talking about the things that make your low voice tremble into human hearts, and that thing will always be specific to you at some at some level, because again, there's something about reality, and that God is there for the Holy Spirit is in the reality. Um, uh, but that's it's almost like suddenly you can see when someone's tapped, and that's why there are, you know, preachers who 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 can be a mess, but they've got that, yeah. and you can always get something uh, out of it. We've talked about that. It reminds me a little bit of Simeon and I have been talking a lot about Taylor Swift released two different records this year that have had uh, enormous uh, resonance into the the, her, the low voice of of, of of she's got a high voice, but it trembles into the hearts of women and men. And part of it is because she's able to pick out little details that are specific, but if they're specific enough and true enough to as she's evolved as a songwriter that they somehow take on a universal significance, and all of a sudden, this song that she's writing about a very specific, you know, middle school experience in Tennessee is uh, making a 41-year-old in uh, Cambridge, England, just for example, uh, weep at his desk. And it's like, uh, man, and you wonder, like, what is what is it about it? Well, she's tapped into the electricity. I want to, because this is so fascinating, but it is linked to another uh, topic that is, that, that is, I think, adjacent, but also maybe constitutive here, which is humor. Um, and sometimes, uh, he, it's another thing people notice about, uh, they've always, always said it about our father. He was very funny. They've noticed it about John, you were ex- extremely funny when, when you're in the pulpit, but it, they always talk about it in terms of mockingbird. It, there's a lot of humor and, uh, Humor can be very self-serving, but as we we're living in a time where uh, stand-up comedy has really become the ersatz preaching, you know, it's become David Chappelle is nothing short of like basically a prophet up there telling the sort of truth, and and people are having these abreactive experiences. They're also being educated, they're also being made to laugh. But there's something what we're talking about when we talk about uh, abreaction is we're talking about things that pierce the defenses, that break up the frozen seas, and humor is another thing that does that. I think it, it lowers people's defenses. It can become a self-aggrandizing uh, or even defense mechanism. But humor, in the case of ministry or preaching, I, I believe it's 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 a tool to get behind where people the, the 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 defenses they put up against God and against their neighbors and against themselves, and to sort of break those down to get to people where really because laughter is such a imp, uh, impulsive thing. You know, you don't you don't decide to laugh. It's heartfelt, right? Yeah. I mean, th- we're talking about material that either makes you cry yeah. or laugh. A lot so of it. laughter. Just all of it makes you feel, and I just think the moment that the human heart is in play, God is close. And that's where humor is so great. It can disarm people and it can be a place where they experience sort of creative thought. Um, It can be a problem when people use it to deflect from serious things or verticality. Mm -hmm. So I will often instruct couples when they're um, taking each other's hands during their wedding vows, often at a rehearsal because one person is facing the other person and I say, take their right hand in yours because their right hand, when they're looking at them, is on the left, yeah. they get confused and they initially reach for the wrong hand, and then they all want to laugh in that serious moment, and so we get the giggles out in the rehearsal, so that when they get to the wedding day, they don't diminish the gravity of what they're doing with humor. Uh, so I find that that humor goes both ways, and that usually people use it at the wrong moments only and never at the right moments. And I'm honestly getting less and less interested in humor in the pulpit for for what it's worth. But gosh, I love jokes and I live off of them. And I often think that life is a little like most sort of Woody Allen movies or Wes Anderson movies or really Whit Stillman movies in the sense that it's deeply serious under the surface of a whole bunch of really great jokes. And that's, to me, what life is like 
you know, when it's when I'm being most on, it's just a series of little jokes on top of a very deep and serious mm. ocean. There's a thought. What's this? Um, I collect original edition Scrooge McDuck comics. I um, know it sounds a little odd. Not at all. This is original artwork by Carl Barks, who created the Uncle Scrooge comics. He's considered a bit of a genius. There's something really sexy about Scrooge McDuck. You really think so? Love Uncle what do you think about humor, Sim? Well, I've uh, lately I've been doing a lot more um, lecturing to a camera uh, than I'd ever done before, and it's one of the, the the single thing maybe that feels hardest about it. You can't read the room in the same way, but is that it, you can't really be funny, or it's extreme, or you have no idea if it's uh, working. Of course, we watch stuff, you know, so watch someone on YouTube, and we laugh all the time. So it's clearly possible, but you don't trust that that your your sense of humor is getting across. And with undergrads, when you're doing this sort of very heady theology stuff, you know, I teach teach theology to undergrads for a living, uh, you, it's so helpful for connecting, and uh, I miss it, uh, I miss it hugely. But um, it's also, it communicates ways of, of not taking yourself or, or certain kinds of things too seriously in a way that, that um, diffuses them. And I find it, it's also with, um, with parenting, you sort of, teaching kids to, to, that it's okay to be silly uh, is th- serves the same thing. It's a, it's a way of saying, you know, I, re- I really do love you. Uh, you know, uh, somehow that, that, that those two things are almost identical, um, even though you might not think it. Yeah, that's so. That's really. I think it's a silliness is a is a, is also another kind of word for play. And uh, you you talk a lot about play as it relates to holiness. We we we've, we we did that a few weeks ago, but also the the freedom. Um, I think freedom is silliness to me is usually some is connected to freedom. For some people, it's not. For some people, it's it, again it undercuts things. I've I've definitely regretted making jokes at key points in sermons because out of insecurity or or just impulse, like the sort of imp of the perverse, like just something gets in your head and you think, oh, I got to make this joke because I can't not make it, and it it. I have done and it, it so takes many away, times, and I regret it. It takes away, yeah. but and again, humor is. Always at its best when it's not calculated, when it's when it's off the cuff is the is the term for it. But when it's just natural, uh, so you're not suppressing yourself. One of the things I love that we're talking about is all of this material to me is very creative. Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, organic material, right? And to me, the spirit is creative, uh, very much essentially, and. And so humor is creative. All of this stuff is where our minds um, wander when they have latitude. And I think that there is a huge drought of creativity in the world of Christian ministry. And Mockingbird speaks to people at such a deep level in large part because it's creative, whether it's with humor, whether it's with pop culture. um, It just seems to always be that we're able to allow our faith to let us play. And for so many people, the faith seems to be the thing that keeps them from playing. This is why I have a hard time with certain Reformed traditions where their approach to study of Scripture is one that seems to be grounded in trying to smack dirty hands away from a cookie jar and to correct theology, um, because to the extent that hands touch it, they will um, leave dirty fingerprints on the pure essence of the truth. And to me, that is such a stupid angle to take in ministry. And it is so lacking in an understanding of where and how the Bible speaks, how the faith lives, how important creativity is, and what actually makes a church be a transformative experience that people want yeah, more of. Yeah, because that's what anyway. you're, 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 you're saying. It's not, we need an increase in creativity so that people are impressed or there's a higher aesthetic level of things going on. We need an increase of creativity because it means an increase of connection. And, and with, Again, why do people like C.S. Lewis? Without connection. It's because he's creative. That's why they like C.S. Lewis, and there's not enough of that. Capon's like the only one, and nobody's ever you know, heard of him. Robert Capon but, notably has the most playful approach to Scripture, and yet manages to also 
it's almost he takes it very seriously. But I would just say that the 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 reason people uh, don't stop coming to church is because they're not connected to the actual what's going on. And the one of the reasons they're not connected is because there's no creativity involved in um in they, they just think people think just by saying the same words over and over again it will get through when in fact God has given us this vast language of the heart that is is not being it can, can be employed and so um I, I'm with you because one of the things that w- what we've said in so many words is that in for in a lot of ways religion Christianity especially can be a block against connection it can be a way of fending off the it can be another way to uh to become it can you can become an alcoholic as in in Philip's words it's a way of a self-cure uh to a way of deadening certain feelings and thoughts the gospel is a road inward to or it breaks up the sea you know the frozen seas it's 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 not a defense against emotion it's a way it's a means of dealing with it making sense of it and in fact bringing it to god who's already there anyway right i see force both loud and fair as a frozen harbor binding. so cut through the heart cold and clear strike for love and strike for fear Nobody played more abreactively fast and loose with scripture than St. Paul, by the way. I just want to point that out. Like, if you look at when he says, this is about that, you're saying, whoa. I mean, to take that liberty with interpretation of scripture is the exact thing that seems to make people so uncomfortable. I just, I keep coming back to, um, I, you know, that, that we are all like, you know, we are these sort of frozen seas moving through the world, desperate to get in touch with what's underneath, um, self-sabotaging without realizing it by constantly freezing. Uh, and we are desperate for this. And it's what's going on anyway. It's, you know, often someone who might find church very dry or dull, you know, it turns out they actually have some massive obsessive hobby on the side, which is clearly where this stuff is kind of coming out. So it's a very, very rare person who doesn't have something that really uh, captures them. And so it's it's such a shame when that gets separated from their faith, as if anything that they're really excited about that speaks to them in this world is not a thing that is in some way uh, a product of its goodness as God's creation. Um, so uh, that's I, I, just this image of us being, being we're at odds with ourselves. We need help. And uh, this, this, this is one of the ways in which God has, has you know, helps us um, is through art and images and stories and, and the things we're actually responding to. And, um, and we need it. And if we don't pay attention, I think we're, we might be missing, missing the actual voice. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I think I, it, this is a theme that gets more and more important to me uh, as, as time goes on rather than less. One quote I meant to read earlier, which I think is summarizes some of what we were talking about, um, is from W.H. Auden, who says that poetry is not magic. Insofar as it or any of the arts can be said to have an ulterior purpose, it is by telling the truth that they disenchant and disintoxicate. They clear away the 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 um, drunkenness that uh, is really just a defense, uh, a deadening against feeling, and it and it that's I think a very beautiful way to think about any way to employ the senses, the arts, when it comes to even humor, when it comes to uh, Christian ministry. So how is what are what are some things that have played an abreactive role in your life, or is or played a abreactive or are doing so right now? What springs to mind? I know each of us has about fifteen different avenues of where we're pursuing this at all times. So, what, uh, John? I'll let you go first. Uh, so for me. I just want to sort of list a few of the kind of the canons, <laughs> you know, of, of ab reactive content in my world. The first, uh, Simeon already referenced Miami Vice, the remake by Michael Mann, the movie with Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell. And it's 
maybe not high art, but man in general, and man with two ends, Michael Mann movies and direction uh, always have something for me. And his best is about as deep as it gets. There's always something in a Michael Mann movie where the the somehow the camera lens is focused simultaneously on the individual heart, what's really going on inside the characters, and on the big picture of how everything is related to everything. And I love Michael Mann movies for that reason. Then the show Friday Night Lights is a show that just has endless depth, heart, allegory, uh, and insight. And that is a show that has spoken to me on many levels in multiple viewings over many years. And I constantly feel that if I'm needing a sort of fresh return to my real self, I can put on some Friday Night Lights and Coach Taylor and the team will get me to where I am needing to go. Um, the deepest favorite for me in film is Red Beard by Akira Kurosawa, my all-time favorite movie. I wrote an entire essay uh, on the abreactive content in that movie that's in Mockingbird at the Movies, and I stand by that. That is a movie that I could watch in devotional 10-minute increments over and over again for the rest of my life and never depart from the main vein of what is true about God and life as I see it. So those are the three main ones that come to mind that are just deep wells. Oh, lastly, most of Mel Brooks, Mel Gibson, sorry, Mel Gibson's recent movies uh, have just spoken to me. That movie Apocalypto, oh, I cannot watch that movie and not pray about the things that are going on in my life for some reason. It brings everything to the surface, and I've tested it multiple times at multiple phases of my life. Similarly, Hacksaw Ridge, I, similar, and I love war movies for this reason. I love movies about coaching and sports for this reason. So that, that's a bunch for me. For me, it's so funny how easy it is uh, on, on this one. I mean, the, for me, there, there are a series of books, you know, the phases in my life can be, you know, carved up into representative books. Um, the first being The Lord of the Rings, the second being Ender's Game, the third being Bride's Head Revisited, and the fourth being Theophilus. North and uh, so for me, I often I, I get I don't have as much, but the things I have I get so much from over and over and over again. Um, one other example for me, so the poetry of T. S. Eliot is enormously. I think there are ways in which I, I always for me, whenever art gets too heady or too complicated or you know, a lot of poetry, it it takes too much work to get to it. And I'm not very interested. Same with certain kinds of abstract painting, but the um, but so for somehow for me, T. S. Eliot has the. It's formally brilliant and yet speaks uh, in just, you know, it, it speaks with that, that electricity that I can, that, that speaks to me. And so especially the play The Cocktail Party, if you don't know it, I mean, just, I could almost quote it line by line uh, at this point. Um, you know, then there, there are these things that they're specific to, to yourself, you know, often. There's something in, I don't fully understand, but it, it's definitely the case that I cannot read, I mean, ground zero for me abreactively, and I still don't fully understand why. Um, is the scene in the third book of the Lord of the Rings where Eowyn reveals herself to uh, to fight the Witch King of Angmar uh, on the field? This very sad but brave and beautiful woman. Um, there's something about that sequence that maybe in in the eschaton I'll understand why why that gets to me emotion. Some some core thing about the goodness and the sadness of reality is caught for me in that scene, which is like three paragraphs, and they totally ruined it in the Peter Jackson movie, unfortunately. Be gone, foul Dwimmer Lake, Lord of Carrion. Leave the dead in peace. No living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn am I. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone, for living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. Wow, those are that's all great stuff. Again, I'll just triple down on the Friday Night Lights thing. I find um, I, I was thinking about this in terms of music and uh, the the songs of Jimmy Webb, the guy who wrote um, uh, Wichita Lineman and um, 
uh, uh, all of the great Glenn Campbell hits by the time I get to Phoenix. He has a way of uh, getting piercing my defenses and he's writing these songs that are have nothing to do with my life they're about oklahoma or um you know but they're ultimately usually about sort of uh longing and love and and god a lot of times and those always have a way of piercing my the other the other group that's right now is doing for me other than taylor swift and the bgs is abba here you have these Swedish guys writing in a second language, and yet all of their music has a way of unpacking, um, you know, fear and um, romance and uh, even dread and insecurity and all this stuff. It, it, maybe because it's slightly removed, because it's, a, it's you know, Agnetha Falskog is, is singing about something that I don't assure she, she can under, she understands it emotionally. I don't know if she at the time understood the actual lyrics of what she was saying, but it 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 just pierces my armor, you know. Um, and then uh, I would say one of the f- the films of Wes Anderson that does it for me is the Darjeeling Limited, which is a you know people always Brothers. accuse him of being sort of an emotional remove from his films, but I don't. That one is is not not so, or at least you have to maybe if you have to be in the right frame of mind, and that has to do with brothers and family and uh, travel and aging and uh, healing and death and rebirth and all the important things. And uh, it, I find it to be a tremendously moving film. I also would just double down on what John says about sports movies. I was I was talking to I asked uh, Todd Brewer who edits our website site right now and sort of what what he thinks of app reaction he he meant immediately mentioned the the movie miracle the what kurt russell film about the olympic uh, ice hockey team which is my kids watch it the other day and they watch rudy and they watch uh you know um hoosiers and for maybe it's maybe it's a male thing i don't know i just know that i find myself crying in these films even if i've seen them a hundred times so those are some things to throw out there everyone has their own uh morrissey is big up there for me too again someone who's totally outside of my context yet seems to be able to get me in touch with my present tense in a way that is uncanny uh, no matter what stage of life I'm in. So these are things you revisit over and over again. Can I just give a shout out to Judd Apatow and dramedy as a genre in general? As a 40-year-old man, I find that those movies uh, always are talking about themes that are really close to the bone in a way, and usually laughing at them. Um, but so his stuff, similarly, and the kind of benchmark for Judd Apatow movies. He was interviewed once and he said his favorite movie is Terms of Endearment. And if you watch Terms of Endearment, which is both very heavy and totally hilarious and really brilliant, um, is kind of the original Judd Apatow movie. And that movie with uh, Shirley MacLaine and Jack Nicholson, if you watch it, uh, people just remember it for the one theme about the daughter. That's what made the big impact initially. But if you go back and watch it, oh my gosh, terms of endearment will sway. Yeah, I had I had the same anyway. experience watching uh, Pride and Prejudice again recently, which I know the plot by heart. And yet Jane Austen somehow throughout the ages, the abreactive electricity just it just it's there. I mean the the new version of Emma had a little bit of that effect. Um so it's not just limited to these macho things. Um Thank you both for, uh, and thank you for listening. This has uh, been just a delight, and we will uh, come back at you soon. And the Wichita lineman is still on the Thanks so much for listening to us do our thing. We hope you've enjoyed it. We do invite you to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you've enjoyed this. And please tell your friends about it. Audio production was provided by TJ Hester. And you can find Mockingbird on the web at www.mbird.com. See you next time. Thank you.